Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, we bring summer vacation to a close with some choice cups from Bellelli's Taoist Lecture Series, as well as his book, Not Afraid, covering topics far and wide as usual, including war, wealth and inequality, and a quick notion for a tough time. We are all specks of dust, and the fate of the universe depends on us all. So here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle figure of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Taoist Podcast, begins now. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. This is episode 117. And across from me is my pal, Daniele Bolelli. We got something different mixed up for everybody today. Yeah, today we'll play with something else. Because I am a big fan of the idea that summer is for vacation. So we haven't been recorded. We had a bunch of pre-recorded episodes, but we kind of scraped the bottom of the barrel with that. We All the way to left. the bottom. And we just got together now having to release uh, today. So it's, we don't have a whole lot of time to record or do anything. So what I thought, what I wanted to do, which I think is a very noble substitute for substitutes, mm-hmm. substitute, something like that, the, for uh, one of our regular episodes would be to give you guys a taste of uh, the Taoist lecture series and of my audiobook, Not Afraid. So you will get a few chapters from Not Afraid, some of my favorites. We'll get a few from the Davis Lecture series, put it together. And and again, you guys may just enjoy it for what it is. If you like it, you want to check out the Davis Lecture series and Not Afraid, they're both for sale at danielbolelli.com. Either way, good stuff. Hope you guys enjoy today's episode. So, you know, there's like 16 of these all together, and each of them are like 30 to 45 minutes, and they're all on different topics. But I think we've wisely chosen a couple that are, are, are uniquely qualified for today's... It was a rich choice of the day. Yeah. Was, uh... War and wealth and inequality. Yeah, that's what that's we're going America, with today. That's America, baby. Oh, yeah. Well, so we'll play with those for uh, Davis Lecture Series with a few Not Afraid, so all the good stuff. Yes. Let's give a quick thanks to the lovely folks at Datsusara uh, on Knit and Shore Design, who are against all business science, always having our back, which is very sweet. How's our wallet holding up? Because mine is as sturdy as my hemp bags that have been across the country exactly. 10 times. I've, uh, th- we got our new Datsusara hemp wallet, which is epic and heroic as the bags are. My bags are getting packed to go to Oregon to see the eclipse. I was just in Colorado, Italy, and Big Bear during my summer trips. And of course, good Datsusara bags were... Not me. worn, not nope. tattered, nope. nothing falling out, zippers fine. So all the good stuff. If you want a damn bag that's going to last, not some piece of garbage from Walmart. Oh, and I have uh, uh, an only thing to mention Ooh. that I should. So you ever played a game uh, Connect 4? Of course. Uh, so 
play Connect 4 and I'm getting my ass kicked regularly. This is not even a new thing. By both Savannah and Isabella, both kick my ass at it on a fairly regular basis. Humbling moments are good for your soul, son. Except one day I cheated. And this is, I need to try again because honestly, I'm like, this is too good. It cannot be this good, right? I popped the powder alpha brain. Not because of that, you know, I was doing it because I was kind of like a little sluggish. I wanted to. And I'm just demolishing them at Connect 4. And then the next day, no alpha brain, I go back to getting my ass kicked as always. So now it's an experiment that I'm intrigued with. I need to try the alpha brain again to see if he, did it really work that damn good? Because this is too good. It's like, so I'd like the story better if it wasn't by accident because it makes a better commercial. You know, there you are, beating the game. Ha ha, you suck. Yeah. And you're sad. And you look across the way. So it There's may be alpha brain. Ex- instant. Exactly. No waiting around. Exactly. So you're like, oh, excuse me, I got to pee. Sneak off into, shake it up. Take you, it, you, come back. You and, come back and you're dropping four at a time. Like, okay. See, I thought that's and, what you meant. You cheated. Like, you're yeah. like, hey, look over there. And you drop two. No, no, no. It was, uh, no, I'm excited. Because if you're really, because I mean, I told you, I like the alpha brain powder. Whereas the pills weren't doing it for me. The powder is working I'm well totally for me. You are the other way around. Give I me know. my pills. So the, now, I mean, if it works this good, man, I'm going to shoot it in vain. This is going to be interesting. Don't, but don't No, I won't shoot it in vain, but, you know, you Someone get the idea. Someone might try that, and then yeah, where are we going to That be? would be a bad idea. Aubrey would be like, yeah. Why many... are you telling people to shoot up the alpha brain? <laughs> yeah, low suits are no just good. Just so nobody gets confused, don't shoot the alpha brain. <laughs> yes, just take the powder. That's good enough. Yeah. And, of course, thank you to the good folks at Shore Design for the coolest T-shirts on the planet. They have a bunch of great tie-dye stuff I saw recently. Yeah, so no, it's I mean, back to school, man. Get your kids in proper uniforms so they don't confuse them old, with the evil bad people. No, all the good stuff. Um, Shore Design has it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to Alpha Dynamics Health. You know, you ever play the Super Mario video game? Yeah. You have memories where, you know, there were those epic mushrooms that gave you power-ups and extra life if you got them. Well, here is the real-life version of it. Is it an orange one or a green one? Because one was like a life-up and one was just like make you super powerful. Well, this is uh, a whole range of uh, medicinal mushrooms used in uh, traditional Chinese medicine. And these guys have designed a range of kind of performance-enhancing mushroom mixes, adapted, you know, Quick delivery to the body, several of them working at the same time, designed for athletes, anybody looking to enhance performance, well-being. They sponsor Savannah, which is a sweet thing. So I like that. Check them out. Their Instagram is alpha.dynamics and their website is uh, alphadynamicshealth.com. Check them out. I uh, am very much looking forward to experimenting because I was gone this whole time. So they shipped me some of the mushroom. I haven't had a chance to check them out yet. No, they are not the hallucinogenic kind. They are the everything else. good stuff. I know that's what Rich wanted, but no, that's not what we're looking for. But so that's the gig. Now, having said all that, let's jump into our episode. The voice you hear next will be Mr. Daniele Bellelli from his Dallas Lecture Series. Episode War.
Daoism was born at a time when warfare was the norm. Now, that's probably true for much of human history, but it was definitely true for those times. So it's not surprising that there are many references to warfare and conflict within the Tao Te Ching and Taoist literature in general. Before we try to figure out what it all means, let's look at some of these references. For example, in poem number 30 from the Tao Te Ching, one who is going to guide a ruler through use of the Tao doesn't try to conquer by force of arms. It is the nature of military power to turn against its wielder. Wherever armies are, thorny bushes grow. Therefore, a good general achieves his goal and stops. Achieves his goal, but doesn't boast of it. Achieves his goal, but consider it an unfortunate necessity. Achieves his goal, but doesn't relish in violence. For violence is against the Tao, and who is against the Tao dies young. Let's try another one. Number 46. With Tao under heaven, stray horses fertilize the fields. Without Tao under heaven, war horses are bred at the frontier. Jump into another one. Number 31. When the use of weapons cannot be avoided, the best policy is calm restraint. Even in victory, there is no beauty. And whoever calls it beautiful is one who delights in slaughter. Those who delight in slaughter cannot achieve their purpose in the world. The slayings of multitudes should be marred with sorrow. The victory should be celebrated with a funeral ceremony. That's a powerful line right there. A victory should be celebrated with a funeral ceremony. But before we jump into the meaning of it all, let's try another one. In number 42, there's a one-liner that say, the violent man shall die a violent death. Right there, this one line, several hundreds of years before Jesus, this is basically the same concept as the biblical live by the sword and die by the sword that Jesus is supposed to have spoken. You find it almost identical in the Tao Te Ching here in the idea of a violent man shall die a violent death. And even if it's not always physically violence, it always is on a psychological level. That's what these guys are getting at. And never mind the fact that the odds of it being a physical violent death are also pretty high, just because violence tends to lead to more violence. And any empire that grows too big collapses. Emperors are, get to be killed by their own generals if the army is too powerful. These are you know, some of those things that you show up in history over and over again. But let's look at what all of this means. So it's not that Taoism is against war for moral reasons, Mainly it seems for practical ones. There are a few problems that Taoism identifies with warfare and violence. Problem number one, unless you permanently crush your enemy, wiping out every survivor, the odds are you're going to have to fight a fight again and again and again. You rarely fight a war once. Why? Because whoever you have defeated is going to be itching for revenge. If you just give them one glimmer of hope that they can turn the table around, they are probably wishing for that day to come and waiting for their chance. So one of the problems with warfare is that it doesn't really solve things long-term unless you obtain a complete, crushing, dominating victory. 
So, you know, the idea is that even a victory, a partial victory through warfare, is one that plants seeds of resentment that will come back to haunt you down the road. On the other hand, and the same thing, by the way, is true in relationships. If in a relationship with somebody, you get into an argument and you start yelling at each other, or maybe with pure cold logic, you demonstrate how they are wrong on this issue and that issue and that other issue. If you make them feel like you're fighting them, whether by raising your voice or whether by opposing everything they say with cold, perfect logic, they are going to not be so thrilled with you. Even if they give in, even if it's because you yell louder or even because your logic is flawless and you win your points and you force them to admit that you're right, if you do it in a conflictual way, these people, maybe on a subconscious level, maybe it's not even conscious, but they are going to be itching for a chance to get back at you because you basically went in front of them and slammed them uh, verbally. But still, that feeling of having been defeated is there. And more often than not, that generates the desire for getting another chance, for revenge, for fighting back. So that's the first problem, that victories through aggressive means are rarely complete ones. Problem number two, nobody wins all the time. So if your power depends on fighting, eventually you're bound to lose. No one always wins. That's just the nature of the business. So if force is the way that you come into power, get what you want, well, that's really too bad because you can't count on it lasting since by nature these results are shifting. They will change. So you better have some backup plan beside force because force is not going to always see you the winner in every single outcome. Problem number three, too much energy. Um, winning by fighting, winning by warfare, winning by open conflict, winning through violence, takes way too much energy. If I can talk you into giving me what I need, and you walk away from in this interaction feeling happy about it, it's way easier and longer lasting than if I have to beat you in a bloody battle in order to achieve the same result. For multiple reasons. One, because I don't have to spend that much energy. I don't have to fight you all the way to get what I want. Because unlike a victory obtained by beating you, if you walk away feeling that you also got what you wanted and we are both happy with the outcome, I'm not going to have to deal with you again the next time when suddenly you change your mind and you're unhappy and because you want revenge. You don't want revenge. You walk away feeling like this was a good interaction. It worked. No conflict. And you don't have to deal with the fact that nobody wins all the time because this is not a victory per se. Well, it is in the sense that you got what you wanted, but it's not a victory where you win and somebody else has to lose. So that's what Taoists argue, is that the highest skill is being able to walk away from a potential conflict where everyone gets what they want. Clearly, it's a lot easier said than done. Clearly, if ancient China had the equivalent of a military-industrial complex profiting from wars, it's probably safe to say that they wouldn't have liked Lao Tzu very much. But that's 
the Taoist ideal right there is victory not all victories are born the same not all ways of getting what you want are equally valid i mean there's a paradox that you see there there's in um, the art of war which is this book written by sonso which was very much inspired by Taoist concept in the art of war it says that well the mediocre warrior loses battles the skilled warrior wins battles but the greatest warrior of all wins without fighting you never see the greatest warrior fight because he maneuvers strategically in such a way that he gets what he wants without actually having to resort to force if you want to put it in bruce lee language this is right there the art of fighting without fighting and even the Tao Te Ching find uh, some concept right in there, like in poem 68, for example, it say, a great soldier is not violent. A great fighter doesn't lose his temper. A great conqueror does not fight. A great leader places himself below others. This is the virtue of not fighting, or rather non-fighting, as some translation put it. This is obviously easier said than done everybody understand that in a case of conflict whoever can uh, be the toughest fighter and get what they want after a bloody battle everybody understand how that work one side wins one side loses it's pretty clear cut this idea of using strategy if it was that easy everybody would be doing it so clearly it's not something that you just oh i just need to will to do it that way I just need to have the desire to set things up that way and I'll succeed. Clearly it's not, but that's the Taoist ideal. They consider the use of force a lower level skill than the skill that allows you to maneuver the situation, to get what you want, and let other people feel like they haven't lost either. This in some ways is the paradox of... uh, Taoism that on one hand you know Taoist pragmatism comes a player where on one hand it seems to condemn violence and warfare in all of these references that we have seen for all the problems we have mentioned about and probably you know there's a moral ground there where they do probably have some opposition to warfare in other ways as well but also once they say this they also then go on to teach you how to become extremely effective at waging warfare you know, most people are either against warfare and fighting and violence, in which case they promote pacifism, or they are all for it and they cherish it. They are into it. They build this old mythology about being tough warriors and all of that. Lao Tzu is not in favor of cherishing it, but at the same time, his idea in very pragmatic fashion is you better become really good at it, and then ideally you never have to use it. Is very much in line with the whole uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. You need to have both sides in order to have your options open because maybe there are situations where you can't avoid but engaging in war. Maybe you can't avoid but reacting strongly. Maybe you're going to run into forces that don't respond well to you being gentle and kind or to you tricking them by confusing them or by doing whatever other psychological trick, maybe you need to employ force, in which case you better be able to use it. But ideally, that's like the ultimate last resort, according to Lao Tzu. 
So that's what The Art of War, you know, the other, this book that's very much inspired by Taoism, comes in handy. The Art of War is a manual, in a way, is a textbook about military strategy, about psychological strategy, how to apply psychological insights to uh, fighting. And yet, you know, it's born from a worldview that tend to condemn fighting. But again, just because it says not a desirable thing, it doesn't say that you shouldn't engage in it. It says you should know how to do it. Just ideally, you never have to use it. Here is another Dao Te Ching quote regarding war. Poem number 69. There is the maxim of military strategists. I dare not be the first to invade, but would rather be the invaded. I dare not press forward an inch, but rather retreat a foot. There's no greater catastrophe than to underestimate the enemy. To underestimate the enemy might entail the loss of my treasures. Beside, you know, the obvious concept of underestimating an enemy is always bad news, there's also this idea of... uh, not pressing forward but retreating. He's not saying running away. He's not retreating in that sense. Clearly, in terms of strategy, if Lao Tzu was a boxer, they would say he's a counterpuncher. He likes the opponent to make the first move, create an opening for him to counter it. Jigoro Kano, the creator of Judo, very much based the, the entire martial art that he helped shape, Judo, on Taoist principles on this notion of using the opponent's aggressive force coming your way to redirect it in a way that will do damage to your opponent and not to you. The harder they come at you, the easier it is to throw them. That's applied Taoism right there. In another one-liner, in number 57 in the Tao Te Ching, it says, use a surprise to wage war. So what it's saying here is... It's sort of a Machiavelli approach to warfare, is don't show your strength, weaken your enemy in subtle ways, use that element of surprise, which ultimately it's how somebody weaker can beat someone who's stronger. You know, if there's no surprise, if it's tomorrow, we meet in that field, even conditions, we have even numbers who are equally armed, clearly the guy who's better prepared, who has a stronger army, who has veterans among them, is going to win. The stronger one will win. So that's clearly not what you want if you're not the strongest one. And so you're going to try to stack the odds in such a way as to put them in your favor. You know, you have, and this idea of surprise is something that you find among most famous military thinkers. Like, for example, a guy who knew a thing or two about warfare said the most powerful thing in war is unexpectedness. This piece of advice comes to us thanks to a guy who made a habit of drowning his enemies in rivers of blood. The man clearly knew what he was talking about. His name was Julius Caesar and crushing enemies was his business. And this idea is the most powerful thing in war is unexpectedness. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, eventually you're going to lose unless you constantly use tricks and strategy and careful planning to stack the odds in your favor. Julius Caesar, some 2,000 plus years ago, writing this, 
But really, this is the kind of insight that anybody who has ever had to fight in one form or another realizes. Fedor Emelianenko, a legendary figure in the early days of mixed martial arts, uh, wrote, By steering away from tradition, you'll often catch your opponent off guard. Same thing right there is the same thing that Caesar is saying. This notion of being unorthodox, setting up a strategy that's not obvious, that's not just by the textbook that the other guys can predict what you're going to do, but to constantly keep your opponent on their toes, to use feints, to break the rhythm, to do things that are somewhat unexpected so that your opponents can never quite wrap their minds about what you're going to do next. That's how you beat a superior force by taking them out of their game, by using this psychology of fighting to weaken their resolve, make them second-guess all their decisions. When you can't outright win, confuse them. Show yourself strong when you, when you want to actually avoid battle. You make this impression of strength so that they'll decide, oh, these guys are too ready, let's not do it. You show yourself weak when you want to lure them into battle. A million different psychological tricks to achieve the results. Because, I mean, ideally, the fact is, if you're going to fight following the same techniques and tactics used by everyone else, success will boil down to whoever is fresher, stronger, faster, whoever has spent more time training for this moment, and, of course, whoever is luckier on that particular day. But you you don't want to rely on luck, and you don't want to rely on, you know, the thing is, war is not a fair thing. Violent conflict, there's nothing fair about it. What you want is you want to set up the most uneven fight possible, stacking the odds overwhelmingly in your favor. Because this is not a sports competition where, you know, you want fairness and you shake hands at the end of it all. This is survival. And so that's really the paradox of Taoism about this. They strongly condemn violence in all of its aspects. I mean, you guys have heard all the references already. Very negative view of warfare as an inferior approach to conflict resolution. This idea that even if you are the conqueror in war, even if you end up winning the greatest victory, this notion that victory should be celebrated with a, as a funeral ceremony. Because ultimately, victory means you still have had to kill a ton of enemies. And in the Taoist worldview, that's far from ideal. But at the same time, on one hand, keep in mind that that's not the ideal. And there are many, many, many other skills you should develop in order to approach conflict resolution in a way that will benefit you, but without the major problems that go with open conflict. But at the same time, Taoism encourages you to be good at it. Because ultimately, nobody is effective at using peaceful means as somebody who is not scared of conflict. That's the paradox right there. Whoever is more ready and willing to use force if necessary, but at the same time has the restraint not to use it carelessly, is paradoxically the one who is probably going to be better able to avoid using force precisely because they are ready to do so. In a nutshell, that's the Taoist attitude about open conflict, warfare, and all of these things. 
We're going to start this one with a quote, not from the Tao Te Ching, not from Chuan Tzu, actually from the Bible of all things. Matthew 6, 19 through 621 reads, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There are quite a few passages in the New Testament that basically argue the same thing. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is preaching against accumulation of wealth. The most famous, of course, being the it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, which is as radical a condemnation of accumulation of wealth as you can think of. This message shows up time and time again in the New Testament. Now, let's look at what Lao Tzu was saying a few centuries before this stuff. In uh, poem number three of the Tao Te Ching, we read, Don't prize rare objects, and people will not steal. Poem number nine, When gold and jade fill your home, you will not be able to keep them safe. To be proud with wealth and honor is to sow the seeds of one's own downfall. Number 12. Rare, valuable goods keep their owners awake at night. So you can see that, in this case, both Jesus and Lao Tzu tend to be quite vocal against the idea of chasing wealth. Chuan Tzu here joins the chorus. You have, Now the rich embitter their lives by constant work, accumulating more wealth than they can use, lacking contentment with what they have. Actually chopped up the quote a little bit because it was after the now the rich and bitter of our lives by constant work, accumulating more wo- more wealth than they can use. Chuan Tzu was going on with other words in there um, that in my mind don't quite add up to the meaning, but that end of that sentence, lacking contentment with what they have, being a key element with what both Chuan Tzu and Lao Tzu will uh, say in regards to accumulation of wealth and in another brilliant one-liner by Chuan Tzu he writes a person attached to things becomes possessed by them so this idea of accumulation of wealth is not so much against wealth itself that is bad to some degree you can find some Taoist arguing that you can even enjoy luxury it's not that in and of itself, it's sinful. The problems are different. It's not so much wealth is bad. Is Wealth is addictive. That's problem number one. It's very easy to become attached to material goods. And once you do become attached, it's very easy for greed to follow. And soon enough, you develop this internal drive where it's never enough. You constantly want more. In true addict fashion you fall into this vicious cycle of overcraving, of constantly wanting more and not be able to be satisfied and enjoying what you have right in front of you. Maybe you have experienced this like these that are not about wealth. Maybe you have experiences like these in other departments. I remember on multiple occasions going through periods in which 
I eat for uh, not for the pleasure of tasting food, not even because I'm hungry. It's eating almost as a, as an addiction, just because it's let me stuff my face right now. Let me eat more and more to the point where you don't really taste the food that much. You are doing it as a automatic response. You are doing it because you are bored, because you are sad, because you are in a weird mood, because and so you basically inhale food up as a way to distract you from all that. And then what happens is that when you snap out of your routine, maybe you go traveling, maybe you something that makes you snap out emotionally and even practically from sitting at home, staring at the refrigerator. When you do it again, you actually taste stuff. So it's not that food is good or bad, it's your attitude toward it. In one case, there's the approach of an addict that's not even tasting it, it's just shooting it straight in vain. And on another level, there's the element of somebody who can be incredibly happy without even the massive amounts of food, but with the texture of it all, with the quality of it all, more than the quantity. There's one American Indian legend among the, the Ojibwa tribe that perfectly capture the addictive element of wealth. It speaks of the Windingo. The Windingo is, uh, in Ojibwa mythology, the Windingo is a demon. Now, if he wasn't bad enough that he's a demon, he's a flesh-eating demon. And if he wasn't bad enough that there's a flesh-eating demon out there, he's a flesh-eating demon that every time he eats, he gets bigger. And that means that his appetite grows, so he becomes hungrier than he was five minutes before as he devoured somebody. And so he needs to eat more. He's on the prowl, and he'll go after somebody else and eat them. And then he'll need to eat even more. So is this flesh-eating demon whose hunger can never be satisfied is never enough you constantly crave more in this vicious cycle now that's the perfect metaphor of the wealth addiction uh, money as a drug this idea which again is i wish it was just an idea this very obvious practical thing that people seem to use in their own lives of craving wealth to the point that you end up sacrificing all your time, all your energy, the stuff that you actually need in order to actually enjoy life, you sacrifice it in the name of gaining wealth. And then because you are miserable, because you know you have no more the time and energy and friendship and all the energy that you can dedicate to a million other things that improve the quality of your life, then all you can do to feel a little better is fall into compulsive consumption just buy something that makes you feel better for five minutes you buy yourself a new shiny toy that's and yet that very action drive you even deeper into the addiction to wealth because now you are tied even more to making more money that make you more miserable since you have less time and energy which makes you buy more stuff which in turn makes you more miserable i mean it's the ultimate vicious cycle this idea of compulsive consumption without actual enjoyment is um, like in Greek mythology, the King Midas story, the, the idea of this guy that everything he touches turns into gold. So he can't taste anything anymore, he can't eat, he can't hug somebody, he can't, because everything around him turns into gold. Sound ideal, the oh, anything I touch it becomes incredibly valuable, except that it's no longer valuable because you can't eat gold, you can't taste it the same way, it doesn't have a value in and of itself. So it actually becomes the ultimate nightmare. 
So this idea of the Windingo as you know the metaphor that the Ojibwe use, and if you apply to wealth, this notion of this addiction that eats everything in your path and is never satisfied is the number one problem why people like Jesus, Lao Tzu, Chuan, so a whole bunch of different thinkers don't just condemn wealth. They're not exactly condemning wealth. They are condemning the addiction to wealth, which is very often goes hand in hand with putting the accent on wealth. The second aspect, I've already hinted as discussing the first, but the second aspect here is at what price in terms of time and energy does your accumulation of wealth come at? At what price to you, again, in terms of your own time and energy, what price do other people have to pay for you to accumulate wealth? If you think about the exploitation and destruction of natural resources that more often than not goes hand in hand with people's greed, I mean, how stupid does it get just destroying the very planet that make life possible in the name of an abstraction such as a bank account? That just seems painfully stupid. But like any addict, logic is not going to convince you. Once you are in the clutches of this, of greed, and think of greed as a demon who just swallows up everything, the environment, the planet, your own friendship, your time, your energy, that shows you how dangerous, addictive, and destructive greed is. And greed is what these guys are railing against. As uh, Chuan Tzu puts earlier in that quote that I mentioned about a person attached to things become possessed by them, you end up becoming the slave of the very stuff you own since you end up trading all your time, energy, and joy for them, which does not sound like a particularly good deal. So what a lot of Taoist literature does, uh, you find similar ideas in a lot of Zen Buddhist literature, is to show and to put the accent on the miracle of happiness with very little, with what seems apparently ordinary, in order to avoid the attachment and constant unhappiness that goes into chasing wealth. You know, in Zen Buddhism, they talk a lot about the miracle of the ordinary. There's a Zen poem that says, what a miracle, what a wonderful activity, chopping wood and drawing water. When you look at it like that, it's some dude cutting wood and drawing water from a well. Not exactly the most glamorous stuff in the world. And at the same time, in this sense, the author of this poem wrote, what a miracle, what a wonderful activity. Something so seemingly simple and ordinary being referred to as a miracle. Because really what it boils down to is a state of consciousness. Happiness is something you cultivate inside of you, and it is not entirely independent from external conditions, obviously. It's a lot harder to be happy in the middle of a war-torn zone as people are trying to kill you left and right than if you have uh, a lot of comforts around you. But only to a point, because you can see plenty of miserable people in the most luxurious context ever. So the idea of being able to appreciate everything around you, being, uh, Alan Watts speak of this as true materialism. He say materialism got a bad rap because of people being uh, obsessed with 
objects in an unhealthy way. But materialism can also be a good thing, you know, the ability to enjoy everything around you from the most humble and ordinary to the most rare without really much differentiation. That's talent. There's something beautiful about that, the ability to just enjoy the material world for what it is. Zen master Ryo Khan writes, Alone, with one robe, one bowl, the life of a Zen monk is truly the most free. He's painting a picture that looks like ultimate poverty to most people, and he's arguing how this is a key to freedom. And this is not a guy who is romanticizing this. This is a guy who was practicing. This was his life. He's not some rich guy who was fantasizing about a simple life. This was his real life. There's a famous tale about a thief breaking into Ryokan's hut to steal. And Ryokan comes back, surprising the thief in the act. And the thief is all like, damn, I just got busted. And Ryokan actually apologizes because there's nothing to steal in there. And so he takes off his robe and hands it to the thief because he feels like, you know, maybe you've come a long way and maybe you uh, struggle hard to get here to get something and your family needs it. So don't go away empty-handed. Grab this. The thief look at him like, what the hell? And he just takes the robe and go. And the story ends with Ryokan just sitting naked under the moon, looking at the moon, thinking, hmm, I wish I could have given that man this beautiful moon. You know, this is not a guy who's losing anything. In the middle of the ultimate poverty, the guy is as rich as he could be. This is very much tied to the Buddhist idea of suffering being caused by attachment to desire. And attachment to wealth is obviously precisely one of the things that can uh, cause this. Here are a few more Dao Te Ching quotes in regard to wealth. Poem number 44. He who accumulates much, loses much. The satisfied man meets no disgrace. The one who knows when to stop runs into no danger. He can long endure. In another one, poem 33, Knowing what is enough is wealth. Check that out. How beautiful is that? Knowing what is enough is wealth. Knowing when to stop knowing how much you can enjoy things and how much you are just falling prey to a vicious cycle of addiction. That's wisdom right there. There's happiness right there. And there's wealth right there, as Lao Tzu puts it. In another poem, in number 19, he speaks about reducing, check selfishness and reduce your desires. And in number 46, there's a beautiful sentence that captures this Taoist spirit in regard to wealth. Say there's no greater curse than lack of contentment, no greater sin than the desire for possession. Again, he's not saying can't enjoy what you have around you, far from it. Enjoy the hell out of it is when you need to keep accumulating without actually enjoying it. Think of uh, the dragon in traditional stories. If you've ever seen the cinematic version of uh, The Hobbit, you know what I'm talking about. But even if you go to a lot of ancient fairy tales, the dragon is just sitting on this massive amount of wealth. What is he doing with it? Absolutely nothing. He's not using it in a way that brings him joy. It's about holding on and just digging his clothes into these piles of gold. 
to hold on to it for fear of thieves taking it away from him. And his whole identity, his whole self-esteem is wrapped around this wealth, wealth. It needs to be here. It's mine. It's all mine. But he's not doing jack with it. He's not enjoying it, really. He's just spending his days wondering if thieves are going to steal from him. That right there is a perfect metaphor for the addiction to wealth and what it does to you. Ultimately, there are two ways to be rich. There's the obvious, which is being rich. And there's being happy with very little. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is how happy you are with what you have. If you need a lot to be happy, well, I mean, if you need it, you need it. Maybe you find a way to work hard for it, to get it, and then you can be happy. If you need very little to be happy, that's a lot easier to satisfy. So again, we're not saying this is a self-denying view, pushing the notion that you cannot enjoy expensive stuff. That The idea is that happiness need not to be dependent on it. If you was taken away, you'd be just as happy. You give out your robe and you stare at the moon, as Iriokan would put it, you know. You play with it if it's there and you enjoy if it's there, but if it's gone, no big deal. The problem is that, according to Taoists, unwise people like little kids should be kept distracted and not be shown the precious jewels. Otherwise, they will become obsessed with it. They can just play with them, appreciate them if they are there and no big if they are not there. They will fall into this addiction crave and never be heard from again. So this emphasis on frugality is not because there's anything sinful with wealth. It's simply because if you have few needs, it's much easier to fulfill them. If your needs are many and expensive, then, well, good luck. You either marry rich or win the lottery. Or otherwise, there are many ways to trade a ton of time and energy to slowly accumulate. But trading all your time and energy comes with the problems that we've mentioned earlier. And so wealth turns into a prison, forcing you to trade huge chunks of your life in order to afford the things that you think you need to be happy. So the Taoist idea of learning how to be content with as little as possible is one of the most liberating things that one can uh, practice. And it may require practice because we live in a society, and I don't think it's just modern society. I think it probably wasn't that different in Taoist times. In most human society, we are drawn to having more, more, more. It's in us. You know, that greed muscle is within every one of us. So learning how to tame that a little bit without turning to full self-denial, which is only the opposite side of the coin, just learning the balance where you can enjoy things tremendously, but without becoming their slave, learning how to make yourself happy in periods of abundance, in periods of scarcity, that's the ultimate art. That's what makes you truly rich. And Taoist, on the other hand, within the Tao Te Ching, there are plenty of references to the opposite happening. There are quite a few elements of social criticisms in the Tao Te Ching as they look at what the rich and powerful are of their time are doing, and Lao Tzu is quite critical of it. In one poem, for example, number 53, it says, The imperial court is lavish. 
but the fields are full of weeds and the granaries are empty. They wear wonderful clothes, they carry beautiful swords and indulge themselves with drink and food. They own more wealth than they can use. And uh, well, Lao Tzu argues that this is as far from being in touch with the Tao as you can be. That this is a crime, but first and foremost a crime against yourself as well against other people. In another passage that again reinforces this sense of social criticism, in poem number 75, say, when people are hungry, it's because the rulers eat too much tax grain. Therefore, the unruliness of hungry people is due to the action of the rulers. Here he's talking clearly about social injustice. Um, the idea that when rulers are pushing too many taxes, people go hungry, and the obvious horror of seeing few wealthy people hoarding riches left and right while the poor are starving. This is not something that we invented in modern society. This is something that has existed throughout much of human history. And Lao Tzu is quite critical of this. To close this, which by now should be pretty clear where what the Tao Te Ching and even Chuan Tzu are arguing regarding accumulation of wealth, a beautiful quote from poem number 77 in the Yutang translation, it say, It is the way of heaven to take away from those that have too much and give to those that don't have enough. Not so with man's way. He takes away from those that don't have and give it as tribute to those that have too much. Here you go, some 2,500 years ago or so, Lao Tzu was the original Robin Hood. I don't know if he actually practiced or he's just giving the idea, but right there, it is the way of heaven to take away from those that have too much and give to those that don't have enough. Tao is Robin Hood right there. Chapter 18. Courage and Love Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca noted that dying gladiators were the most dangerous opponents of all. In a similar vein, the author of the Hagakure, Yamamoto Tsunetomo, wrote, The way of the samurai is a mania for death. Sometimes ten men cannot topple a man with such conviction. The reason for this is paradoxical, and yet simple. Once a warrior loses any instinct for self-preservation, he switches his focus to one thing and one thing only, to destroy his enemy. His entire being becomes consumed with pure battle furor. Nothing else exists but the unshakable resolve to kill those who stand in his way. Without the natural desire to survive holding him back, a warrior gains powers unknown by regular human beings. He enters battle with the courage and strength that come from a completely lack of hope and fear. Think of Achilles from the Iliad, after the Trojans have the very bad idea of killing his best friend. The news of his death projects Achilles into a state of near madness. 
by the time he dons his armor and gathers his weapons, he's no longer Achilles. Grief has burned away his identity and his humanity. He's now the incarnation of a demon whose only reason to exist is revenge. Losing everything he loved has given him powers to do anything. Anything that is except what he wants most of all, the ability to bring his friend back. And so the only thing left for him to do, the only thing that will silence temporarily the hellish pain that's ripping him apart, is to gorge into an orgy of blood. When he enters battle, no one will be able to touch him. No one will be able to stop him. He's a force of nature bent on destruction, a monster escaped from the nightmares of the god of war. Before meeting their gory deaths, the Trojans will only have time to curse themselves for the horror they have unleashed. I bet Tolkien had Achilles in mind when he wrote the battle scene in which Eomer, seeing his king killed and believing his sister to be equally dead, leads his knight on a charge against thousands of enemies. His battle cry before driving his horse toward them is Death! Ride! Ride to ruin and the war's ending. Everything looks lost and nothing he can do seems to ultimately matter. So filled with the power of those who no longer know hope, he rides to shed as much enemy blood as possible before the inevitable end. But it is precisely this willingness to die and never see home again that helps Homer, Achilles, dying gladiators and manic samurai to be unstoppable. At play here are the same dynamics that make crazy people the scariest ones to fight. This rage that makes one fearless shows up in many different cultures and historical period. The berserkers, for example, were Norse warriors who, after an abundant meal of hallucinogenic mushrooms, would run into battle with reckless disregard for their own lives. Or the sash bearers from the warrior societies of several American Indian tribes. In an effort to fight until death or victory, they would drive a spear through their sash into the ground, thereby making escape and retreat impossible. The few times when I've had the chance to experience a berserker moment in a fight, I've literally felt my body swell up with rage and my pain tolerance go up tenfold. Without any worry of getting hurt and no longer caring about victory or defeat, I've hunted down my opponent with a type of determination I'd never known before. But what had always frustrated me was that these moments would come to me rarely and beyond my conscious control. Short of actually going insane, how could one call upon this fear-vanishing brand of madness? How to tap into this power at will? I discovered a clue right before my first professional fight in Italy. The night before the fight, I was an intercontinental call with my wife, who was back in California at the time. Sensing that I was in a similar mental space as before all my other fights, one inch away from falling through the jaws of the deepest terror, she suggested I switch perspective about my opponent. Imagine that he's trying to hurt me, she said. And with those eight words, everything changed. Fear didn't entirely disappear, but it was lessened dramatically. Rather than feeling intimidated at the thought of my upcoming bout, 
I couldn't wait to get in the ring and rip his head off. This insight had not arrived a second too soon. In fact, whereas in terms of venue, audience and money, calling the event professional required a bit of optimism, my opponent was no joke. He trained five hours a day and made a living teaching martial arts. Unlike me, he ate and breathed fighting all day long. Focusing on a couple of advantages on my sides, his lack of good takedown defense, and his fighting at a heavier weight class than his natural weight, had helped me to somewhat manage fear, but not nearly as well as I would have liked. Contrary to most of my opponents in smoker fights, this guy was a top-notch athlete and an excellent student of the game. But none of that mattered now. Talking with Elizabeth had pushed the button inside of me and made me ready, even eager to clash with him. The ringing of the bell marked for the first time in all my time in martial arts that I entered a fight relatively free of fear. The fight itself was somewhat anticlimactic. The second he threw the first kick toward me, I shot a double leg and took him down. It was clear immediately that he was quite skilled on the ground, and particularly good at escaping. After he defended very well against a couple of leg lock attempts, I switched strategy and played a slow, stifling game, utilizing my strength to smother him. Eventually I passed the guard and took top mount. From there I wrapped one arm around his neck and began some ground and pound. My opponent was not the type to quit, but luckily, seeing that there was going to be no escape or defense against my attack, the referee mercifully decided to stop the fight in the first round giving me my first and only victory by ground and pound. Even though it's safe to say that the fight was definitely not the most exciting to watch, it was then that I began to take giant strides toward discovering the antidote to fear. Neither pride nor any other personal motivation ever injected me with the necessary courage to stir down fear. My willpower was strong enough to push me to step into the ring despite terror, but not enough to do so unafraid. Over the years, I had tried everything, and none of it had worked long term. What had escaped me all along was that, in the end, defeating fear boils down to love. In this case, it wasn't even like Elizabeth's well-being was actually threatened, but just the thought of it was more than enough to switch my mindset. Because sometimes, you can do for those you love what you would never have the energy to do for yourself. Look at it this way. No one in their right mind would ever casually enter a room where an armed serial killer is on a rampage. Now imagine that the person you love the most is trapped in that very room, and suddenly you would tear down the door to face off against what, until a second earlier, you are running away from. Maybe it's different for other people. Maybe they are braver than me by nature. Or maybe something else does it for them. But for me, the only place from which I can master courage is the love for those who have given me their heart and soul. As it turns out, a love that nearly hurts because it's so intense is the only force that speaks louder than self-preservation.
Chapter 22 From the Pits of Hell The only reason why you were born is that we didn't have enough money for an abortion. Not exactly the message that any 14-year-old girl would want to hear from her father. But then again, there was nothing about life in the Han household that any 14-year-old girl would want to be part of. Had her father been completely honest, he should have probably added that the other reason they didn't abort her was because she was the only one in the family to be born on American soil, thereby the only U.S. citizen in a family of illegal immigrants. The father was from mainland China. The mother, three sisters and one brother were all born in Taiwan. Elizabeth, this was the name of the lady of my dreams, was the father's insurance ticket. Even if he got busted by immigration, he probably wouldn't have been deported since he was the only provider for a US citizen. If you think this is cynical and fucked up, it's but an appetizer for the rest of Elizabeth's childhood. By the time I met her, when she had just turned 24, she shone with an inner and outer beauty that made it impossible not to notice her. But she came from the deepest darkness, and traces of that darkness would never fully leave her, no matter how hard she tried to shake them off. About four years before I met her, she had decided that, since she was emotionally in a better state by then, it would be a good idea to face her past. The noble experiment of a few weeks of therapy trying to grapple with her childhood ended up with Elizabeth holding a razor blade in a warm bathtub while contemplating the old amletic question. After this, she decided that perhaps certain doors were better left closed. She came from a place where horrendous physical and mental abuse was an everyday occurrence. I'm not exactly sure what parenting book her father consulted, but certainly it was one that strongly recommended equal measures of mind-fucking manipulation and ultra-bloody beatings as the twin pillars of the kind of good parenting any child needs. Her mother, who was never a strong person to begin with, eventually went completely insane. There is some debate on whether she was made crazy by the regular beatings or whether she was heading that way on her own, but the end result was the same. Ditto for Elizabeth's only male sibling. Her brother would also grow up diagnosed as clinical schizophrenic, with the extra bonus of being prone to extreme violence. All the sisters would develop psychological issues of differing severity resulting from their childhood. Some of them would still manage to shape a good life for themselves despite this, but getting out of the Han household unscarred was simply not an option. By the time Elizabeth was 15, she started hitting the weight room in an effort to turn her body into a source of strength rather than pain, much to the chagrin of her father. By the time she was 16, she became a ward of the court and ran away from home, never to see her parents again. Her older sisters offered to let her live with them so she could go to college close to home, in the San Francisco Bay Area. The gesture was definitely sweet. Staying with them would have been the logical, safe choice. But Elizabeth was not one to play things safe. The second she was done with high school, she decided to leave everything behind and create her own path far from anyone's influence. So she packed her bags and made her way to UCLA. 17 years old, in a city where she knew no one, insecurity and loneliness stalked her daily. 
but she hit them back harder than they hit her. For better or worse, this was the forge where she would build her spirit. By the time I met her, one of her defining characteristics was a near-manic commitment not to let fear or pain stop her from doing what she wanted. Hell, Nietzsche would have found her willpower intimidating. I may have been the martial art teacher, but she was a warrior through and through. And yet she wasn't stupid. She was conscious that, as much as she had taken giant steps to move away from her past, she could never fully escape it. A relationship with her meant entering a minefield. She made no mystery of this. If anything, she tried to warn me away, or at the very least make me fully aware of what I was getting into. Not for a second did she try to pose as someone she wasn't, or paint things better than they were. She laid all her cards on the table and told me from the start that being with her was not going to be easy. What could be so difficult about loving a woman of maddening beauty who loved me back as intensely as I loved her? Elizabeth was two people. Her nature exuded warmth and kindness. She had a huge heart and an inner fire that made random strangers fall in love with her in an instant. Dogs and babies would drop anything they were doing as soon as they saw her, and inexorably found themselves gravitating toward her, as if she were the sun and they were the planets rotating around her. She was a walking, high-octane concentrate of passion and determination. She owned any room she walked into. Her laughter, her laughter was pure, unrestrained joy, spreading the contagion of happiness to those within earshot. But this was not all that she was. The other person that lived within her was the product of a fucked-up childhood, unforgiving, merciless, ever ready for a fight. She came from hell, so trusting anyone was for her a titanic struggle. Anger is the emotion I'm most comfortable with, she told me several times, and she wasn't lying. It's as if her sunny nature and her tortured upbringing were constantly waging war against each other. Nearly everyone would be captivated by her magnetic personality. But people regularly pissed her off, and she would waste no time pushing them away. Without saying a word, she could express her disgust with you in a way that made you want to crawl back into a hole and never poke your head out again. The fury in her eyes could set you on fire. The intensity of her energy didn't change. Both sides of her were equally strong. But one could make you touch the sky, while the other would crush you to pieces. On paper, it looked like a bad match. Among the many things that made us incompatible, I was a happy puppy who thrived on sharing my house with friends and having people over in a the more the merrier kind of way. She grew up locking herself in the closet to play with some toys, since that was the only place where she felt safe. Needless to say, this left her with a bit of a heightened sense of privacy. Whereas I loved to share my space, her priority was protecting it. I wanted a tribe, she wanted to be left the fuck alone. Living together was not going to be simple for us. She told me all these things right off the bat. She also told me that she survived her upbringing through sheer willpower, but this had left her with a shrunken muscle for compromise. As much as she would have loved to make compromises in our relationship, it was almost certainly not going to be a 50-50 deal. 
she would accommodate me as much as she could. But it might not be that much. In not so many words, she had to have things her way most of the time. In saying this, she wasn't trying to be mean or to dominate the relationship. She was very matter-of-fact about it. I've tried to change much about myself, and I have succeeded to some degree. But I think I've hit my limit. I love you, but what you see is what you get. I don't want you to start seeing under the illusion that one day she'll change, because I probably won't. Either you can accept things as they are, or you should find somebody more compatible. So there it was. Take it or leave it. Many times over the years she asked me, Why do you love me? Don't you think you'd be better off finding someone more like you, someone easier, with less baggage? It would have probably been much easier, but easy was not what I craved. Rather than scaring me away, her raw, disarming honesty made me love her even more. There was no simple logical answer to why I loved her. My love for her had nothing to do with logic. She didn't have to do anything for me. Just the fact that she existed and she loved me was all I needed. Without having to lift a finger, she brought me more emotional balance and happiness than I had ever had. I'm sure that I could have found a thousand women more compatible with me, but I doubt that 99.9% of them could have had the same effect on me. And so I jump into the relationship head first. No hesitations, no regrets. I wanted to be with her no matter how tough it would be, no matter how much of a struggle or how painful. I loved her so damn much that I was happy to give up pieces of myself for her. Had anyone else told me the same about their relationship, I would have thought it was a really bad idea. Others close to me were similarly weirded out. However amazing Elizabeth was, our relationship did not rest on a healthy foundation. After all, I basically lived my life in constant fear of anything that could possibly piss her off, and I was rarely relaxed since I was always trying to anticipate potential problems and defuse them before they got under her skin. Blocking anything that could set off her anger kept me always on edge. I saw those dynamics, but I didn't care. I knew all that and still thought it was worth it. More than anything, I wanted to make her happy. Anytime her vulnerability would peek through her tough exterior, I felt invested with the responsibility to give her all the love she had never received. After all, I'd been showered with affection and attention in my childhood, while she had not been. In a perhaps megalomaniac state, I felt like no one else would be able to do it. And she said as much multiple times. Only you hold the secret to suiting the savage beast in me, she wrote me, only halfway joking. Your presence provides me with a sense of stability, the only kind I've known. Sometimes you seem to be my only source of joy. Don't give up on me, love. How the hell could I? I was the only one she would lower her defenses with. And what I could see in her any time her defenses were down was the kind of tenderness that needs to be protected and showered with love. My mission in life would be to make her happy. She knew I felt that way, and it worried her as much as it gave her warmth. You can't save me, she told me over and over again with words that would prove painfully prophetic. It's not your job to make me happy. Only I can make myself happy. All true, and yet 
All I wanted to do was to give her everything she deserved and never had. Part 3. Answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and raised middle finger. Chapter 33. Throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. The man at the mortuary acted the way you would expect a man who spent his days dealing with death and grieving relatives to act. Grave, somber, a bit stiff. The general sense of heaviness didn't lighten up when, after going over all the details, with a hint of embarrassment he passed me the bill for the cremation. Death was apparently an excellent business, since there were more digits on this bill than I could count. Not that I cared much at the moment. A high bill wasn't exactly the worst thing in my life those days. So I opened my wallet and put out a quarter, and then a dime and then another quarter, while I began to count out loud the loose change I was digging out. As time passed and the coins began to pile up on the table, I could see a look of panic in the man's eyes, when he realized that I may be trying to pay him in quarters and dimes. I let him sweat a little more before smiling at him and saying, I'm just fucking with you. I pulled out my checkbook and wrote him a check. The mask of grave impenetrability broke, and the man laughed his ass off. I don't get to laugh much in my line of work. Thank you. What I discovered was that Gallo's humor was my survival strategy. I clung to it as a lifeboat and wielded it as a weapon. I didn't know how other people handled unbearable tragedy. Every moment since Elizabeth took her last breath had been a threat to my sanity. Just the night prior to my encounter with mortuary man, I had struggled going to sleep in the same bed where Elizabeth had died less than 24 hours earlier. I could still see her body lying there, her face on the pillow next to mine. If I dwelled even a tiny bit on the horror of it all, I could have never slept there again. And aside from the damn bed situation, if, in a more general sense, I dwell on the horror of it all, I would have gone to pieces and no longer have been able to function. This doesn't mean I was planning to be in denial and act as if everything was okay. The day I spoke at the memorial for Elizabeth, I made this plenty clear. The speeches people normally give at memorials and funerals typically bug me. They usually try to exorcise horrific pain with trite formulas and sugarcoat the feeling of meaningless tragedy by rationalizing away those emotions. Either in its more traditional religious version, it's God's will, trust that he knows best, it's all part of his plan, and now our loved ones are in his presence. Or in the new age one, everything happens for a reason. These efforts to force meaning where meaning seems to be absent fail to console me. Life is tough, and people need all the help they can get dealing with it. I can appreciate that. If they need to embrace some cosmic, unseen and unprovable explanation to somehow make sense of all their pain and soften its bite, 
who the hell am I to tell them they shouldn't? I respect the fact that everyone needs to do what they have to do to get up in the morning, but I find this desire to avoid staring in the face of the ugly side of life a bit desperate and insincere. Probably my I'm not going to bullshit you myself or Elizabeth by pretending I know she's in a better place or that everything works out for the best opening wasn't the most traditional thing one might hear at a memorial. Neither was my mentioning that Elizabeth and I had likely made out on every one of the chairs where guests were sitting, since the memorial was taking place in a part of UCLA where we used to hang out when we first met. Elizabeth was brutally brave in facing both life and death, and I was going to honor her spirit by refusing to give in to comforting fairy tales or spineless rationalizations. What I ended up saying was that Elizabeth was all about laughter, no matter what. She wasn't one to deny pain and suffering, but she definitely was one to find a way to smile and enjoy life in spite of them. In a similar spirit, my idol, Zen master Ikkyu Sojun, used to say, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. We don't have a choice whether we end up on the gallows or not but we do have a choice when it comes to having a sense of humor about it. The ability to laugh regardless of circumstances is the only weapon we have to face pain and tragedy. A broken heart and laughter can go hand in hand after all. Elizabeth, EQ and the universe had taught me something that I wasn't about to forget anytime soon. There's no escaping suffering, but this does not mean we have to let it have dominion over our lives either. Chapter 42 He who has learned how to die, has learned how not to be a slave. The bunch of merry, jolly folks were the ancient Romans, firmly believed that nothing screamed fun family time, like watching two guys trying to disembowel each other with two feet of sharpened steel. For centuries, gladiatorial fights were by far Rome's most popular source of entertainment. Countless movies featuring evil, mentally deranged emperors, heroic, unjustly enslaved gladiators, and a bloodthirsty screaming mob have convinced us that ancient Romans were some seriously sick bastards, and the gladiatorial contests were the favorite pastime of a nation of sadists. To be fair, it's not like this impression is entirely unwarranted. I mean... Who the hell loves to have a snack in the stands while drooling, watching men forced to kill each other with swords? An obsession with death and a passion for bloodshed are essential requirements for putting gladiatorial fights at the top of the list of your favorite sports. But if we dig deeper... Okay, we probably still run into bloodlust. But if we dig much, much, much deeper we may find out that the fascination for gladiators was spurred by other motives too. And I'm not only referring to those aspects that don't fit with the traditional narrative 
depicting gladiators as poor slaves forced to fight in the arena by evil, rich Romans. For example, the fact that a solid percentage of gladiators were not slaves, but volunteers, or the fact that successful gladiators could retire wealthy, or that some of the hottest women in the empire lasted after them and were their groupies. I'm talking about philosophical reasons. I can appreciate that looking for philosophy in the midst of sand, swords and blood may strike some as delusional. What philosophy? Some will argue. This is murder turn turned into popular entertainment. There's no philosophy here, but only barbarism. Partially true, and yet, consider the words of the giant of Roman Stoicism who was Seneca. Far from being a fan of the games, Seneca at times voiced his disgust with the goriness and vulgarity of the arena, but at the same time mentioned gladiators in approving terms. A clue to Seneca's thinking is to be found in this beautiful sentence born from his pen, or whatever it is that ancient Romans used to write with. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. Something really powerful is in these words. In Seneca's worldview, gladiators were stoic philosophers more skilled at expressing themselves through sweat and muscle than with words. But this didn't make their example less meaningful. Gladiatorial fights, to Seneca, were a form of stoicism in action. The experience of gladiator after all was a particularly dramatic version of the human experience at large. Gladiators centered a world where softness and pity were foreign concepts. The vow that all gladiators had to take was to be willing to be burned, bound, beaten and killed by the sword, which means that gladiators were in no position to harbor any illusions about the future. Regular human beings can afford to keep the thought of death at bay and continue living their lives as if they were going to last forever. This is clearly not the case, but the lack of an immediate threat is fertilizer for delusions. By virtue of their professions, gladiators inhabited a mental space without any room for thoughts of tomorrow. In order to enter the arena in the best possible frame of mind, despite the possibility of death looming large, they had to let go of any attachments and be completely immersed in the present. For a gladiator, being ready to die at a moment's notice was a way of life. That's the essence of Bushido right there. As the Agakure indicates, a samurai who is not prepared to die at any moment will inevitably die an unbecoming death. The gladiator, like a samurai, lived with death as his companion any time he drew breath. Each moment he still walked the earth was a gift from the gods, since any expectation of long-term survival hung by a thread. The constant reminder that each day could be their last put gladiators in a unique frame of mind. What ancient Romans called gladiatorio animo, the gladiator spirit, was the defiant power of someone who had lost any concern for status and profit, who could fight like a man possessed precisely because he was bound to no past or future, someone who had long abandoned hope and fear. 
the awareness that he would lose everything and that he could not save himself or anyone else, injected the gladiator with the power of the damned. Without any thought of self-preservation left, the gladiator was free to fight for the joy of fighting, regardless of the outcome. By embracing death in the course of an epic fight, the gladiator redeemed himself from the powerless inherent in his condition. Here was the most powerless of men, going to meet his fate not like a victim, but with sword in hand and a smile on his face. No one lives forever, the gladiator would say. But for now, to paraphrase the words of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, let's live in such a way that when death comes, even the reaper cries. When stripped of all the pomp and spectacle, the essence of the gladiatorial games was found in learning how to laugh in the face of death. It wasn't simply a matter of winning fights. It was about refusing to let hopelessness crush your spirit. In doing battle to the very doorstep of death, the gladiator taught everyone a lesson about how to die and how to live. Again, the Hagakure hammers on the same lesson. Among other things, the way of the samurai requires that he realize that something may occur at any moment to test the depth of his resolution, and day and night he must sort out his thoughts and prepare a line of action. Depending on the circumstances, he may win or lose, but avoiding dishonor is quite a separate consideration from winning or losing. The veteran samurai thinks not of victory or defeat, but merely fights insanely to the death. Seen in this light, it becomes easy to understand what Seneca saw in gladiators. The gladiator's ability to stand proud in the presence of hopelessness and annihilation, his drive to remain undefeated even when victory was no longer a possibility, was exactly what Seneca had been writing all along. Gladiators embodied the foundations of stoicism in their every gesture. The only difference between life in the arena and life outside was time. The latter usually lasted longer. But the outcome was the same. Death awaited all, inside and outside the games. As scholar Carlin Barton wrote, the universe is an arena where there is no mission, no discharge, no hope for mercy or deliverance. So what the, what the gladiator did was face in a particularly dramatic ritualized context the same dark terror that everyone else at some point has to face. Seneca himself would deal with it courtesy of an invitation to kill himself by the Emperor Nero, who suspected Seneca of conspiring against him. Unfortunately for Seneca, Nero's invitation was not the kind of offer you could refuse, and so Seneca had to open his own veins and soak in a warm bath until he died. But even the 99% of human beings who are not sentenced to fight in the arena or ordered by an evil emperor to slice and dimes themselves, ultimately have to deal with the same dynamics. Coming to terms with one's mortality is on everyone's agenda eventually. And again, here goes Seneca. He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. Unless one grapples with the greatest human fear of all, the fear of annihilation, 
one will always be a slave to one's fear. This fear will stoke them throughout their entire lives, holding them back and inhibiting their ability to live fully. The stoic attitude didn't promise to make the problem go away and remove death from the horizon. What it encouraged instead was the forging of a spirit that can enjoy every second of a mortal life, despite the knowledge that each passing second brings us closer to our demise. Identical to the stoic paradox is the Tibetan Buddhist practice of the sand mandala. Monks will spend days working with painstaking patience to create an incredibly elaborate painting, progressing one grain of colored sand at the time. After countless hours of labor, when the large painting is completed, people enjoy it for a while before destroying it. The point is not to create a masterpiece that will be kept under glass forever and ever. The point is to teach a lesson about beauty and the impermanence of life. The monks learn to keep working at it and enjoy the process, despite knowing full well that they will not get to keep it, and it will last but minutes after it's done. The mandala is not different from life itself. Its amazing beauty is certainly fleeting, but this is no reason not to enjoy it while it lasts. But an excess of attachment will only bring you misery. So enjoying things for the moment is the stoic, gladiatorial, Buddhist solution. This, clearly, is almost unhuman and impossible to achieve. The natural human response, after all, is to become increasingly more attached the more we love something. How is it possible to love with full intensity, but with no attachment? I don't know that. I'm not there and probably never will be. And I'm not even sure I want to be. But loving every damn instant on the planet without the excess attachment that inevitably brings fear of loss and heartbreak along with it, that's an art that everyone could use. Chapter 43 Truly badass is having the strength to be kind when life is not. I fought for long and was a fighter so that I might one day have my hands free to bless. Friedrich Nietzsche One of the ultimate things a human can learn is kindness for their fellow humans. Ivan Tanner I really don't know if there's a point to pain and suffering. I'm not inclined to think that there is some deep lesson that some higher intelligence is trying to teach us by fucking up our lives and making us miserable. It's entirely possible that there is no inherent meaning in any of this. However, this does not mean that it's impossible to create something great out of suffering, not thanks to it, but in spite of it. Dealing with suffering is very much like being tossed off the boat when you don't know how to swim. Chances are excellent that you will drown. But if not, then you'll probably get out knowing how to swim. The same is true in martial arts and in life. Getting your ass kicked in the ring and on the mat either breaks you or makes you tougher. 
Having your heart broken over and over again by life does the same thing on an emotional level. Most people will be stunted by these experiences. Becoming a warrior means using the same experiences that destroy normal people to forge you into a kinder, stronger person. Many people honestly try to be decent human beings. The reason why they often fail so horribly has nothing to do with lack of good intentions. They're just weak. Frustration, bad luck, fatigue, sickness, and a million other forces chip away at our spirit on a daily basis. Subjected to this kind of pressure, most people break. They turn cynical, mean, defensive, and selfish. Their good intentions meet a sorry end. If kindness is only supported by good intentions, you will be easily worn away by the inexorable grind of daily life. And before you know it, you turn into another bitter asshole who once meant well. Everyone can potentially end up this way since everyone has a breaking point. We would have to be severely delusional to believe we are completely immune to these forces. But if you are familiar with a brand of toughness and willpower that have been forged through battle, you will not automatically shut down under pressure and you may manage to push your breaking point further than most people. So, in this sense, what would otherwise be meaningless suffering can be transformed into weight training for your spirit. And if by any chance you manage to find your way out of hell, then you almost owe it to life to apply this newly found strength not only for your benefit, but for everyone else's. Clearly the relationship between toughness and kindness is not an automatic one, Plenty of really tough people are anything but kind. Some individuals who are truly fearless use this ability purely and only for gaining more power without the slightest thought for anyone else. Their toughness leaves no room for love, compassion or empathy. But in my worldview it is precisely because you know all too well what heartbreaking sorrow feels like and you are able to feel everyone's pain as if you were your own that you don't want anyone else to experience it. I'm not sure why I feel this way. Pure rationality doesn't require the union of toughness and kindness, since it doesn't necessarily lead to any practical advantages. It just feels right. I'm not saying we have to turn into Mother Teresa's clones and help everyone all the time. Kindness to me should not be an automated reflex or a conditioned response. I very much cherish having the option of knocking out less than pleasant human beings who spread pain to others without caring one bit. But I like choosing kindness whenever possible. Regardless of whether you believe in God or not, regardless of whether you believe in an afterlife or not, regardless of which particular political philosophy you subscribe to, regardless of skin color, gender or religious preferences, kindness matters. It improves our collective quality of life. In the words of the great Evan Tanner, one of the ultimate things a human can learn is kindness for their fellow humans. One doesn't have to be fearless to be kind. But if you have learned to walk through hell unfazed, you'll have more power to turn good intentions into meaningful behavior, since most of your energy will not be jailed by the demons of your insecurities and weaknesses. In Lakota culture, the virtues of bravery and fortitude are the foundations for wisdom and generosity. Defeating fear, 
allows you to put kindness on steroids. You'll simply have greater strength to bring happiness to those around you. This is what being truly badass is all about in my book. Truly badass is having the strength to be kind when life is not. I see so much hurt in the faces of good people and so much heartbreak. In their eyes, I recognize my own hurt. And what I want most of all is to have the strength to take it all away. I know all too well that this is simply impossible. But I still find no greater meaning for taming fear than to develop the tools to take some of the pain away from other living beings. Chapter 44 Commencement Speech Bolelli Style Most motivational speeches tell you that if you try hard enough, if you stay true to your dreams, if you fight the good fight, if you are passionate enough, if you have enough willpower to withstand the rejections and difficulties, eventually things will work out for the best and all your hard work will finally pay off. This is what the entire self-help industry is based on. It's a sweet message. It appeals to our sense of fairness and justice. And it also happens to be complete bullshit. Or rather, it can be true only if all of the above goes hand in hand with an insane amount of luck. Without luck, doors will remain closed, no matter how much you think positively about them opening. The notion that good outcomes await you if you only put in enough effort and desire. The notion that the good guys will always triumph in the end after overcoming seemingly impossible odds. Belong on the same shelf with delusional maxims such as everything happens for a reason. You're in the wrong universe for that. It's simply not the way things work here. Most people like to be told otherwise because they can't deal with life when it shows its ugly face. They have to dress it up, domesticate it, and turn it into a Disney movie, lying to oneself as a coping mechanism. The realization that life can be neither merciful nor fair depresses to the core most of those who are forced to stare at it. I don't find it one bit depressing. I mean, I would prefer it if things were different, but I would also prefer it if I was made King of Hawaii. I can live with the fact that the universe doesn't cater to my preferences. Life is tough. Okay, so what? It's not like there's any alternative. So I won't let life's toughness spoil my good mood. Okay, perhaps I won't let it spoil it most of the time. I'll do the things I want because they feed who I want to be, regardless of the outcome. I'll follow my visions because not following them for fear that they may not come true equals accepting defeat without even putting up a good fight. Victory or defeat are largely out of my control. But putting up a good fight, putting up the kind of fight that makes the earth shake and the gods blush, this I can do. I may fail, big fucking deal. If that is the way the game is going to play out, I'll make sure to fail giving every last inch of myself.
I'll fail in such a way as to give epic poets enough material for the rest of their careers. I don't make certain choices just because I was told that if I'm a good boy, Santa will reward me. I'll make them because living somebody else's life out of fear of failing brings me no joy. If the universe ends up being kind to your efforts, good for you. But the key question in my mind is, are you willing to make the exact same choices even if, as it's entirely possible, no reward is there for you at the end? Now you know why I will never be invited to deliver a commencement speech. Well, the funky music means that's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Um, a plethora of Bolelli uh, uh, writings and, and, and audio work there. Hope you guys dig it. Um, I kind of like doing this stuff. I enjoy, um, I had a good time doing the Taoist Lecture Series. I, a lot of people had been asking for an audio version of my books. This was the only one to which I had the rights, so the only one that I could do an audio books of. Well, what will the fine so, folks do? They're like so like hooked at this point. They, I would say, just cough up the money. No, oh. um, I meant to say no. I mean, if you guys are interested, yeah, the Not Afraid exists for I think it's fourteen, fifteen dollars, something like that for the whole audio book. Uh, that was lecture series is uh, ten bucks. They are both on um, DanieleBolelli.com in the store. Uh, that was lecture series is about almost seven hours. Not afraid. I don't even know how many hours. A lot. I remember just it took forever to read the book, but um, that's where it's at. So if you guys dig it, want to check out the rest, that's where you find it. Let's also say a quick thank you to some of the nice folks who donated to us Ooh. over the summer. Let the pottering begin. So let's go with Mr. Kevin Hughes, Maurizio Mezzatesta, Bing. Jonathan Waterloo, Bing. Jonathan, I have no idea how to pronounce your last name, F-A-U-X. Faux? I don't know. Um, I'm taking a guess. So uh, Aaron McLaughlin, Carlos Avila, uh, Sergio Gustinetti, Elizabeth Jones, Lisa Robles, Robert Primos, Kerry Markley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, anything else? Well, of course, there's the good old uh, Onnit, Datsusara, Shore Design, Trifecta. The holy trinity of podcasting. The holy trinity of podcasting. We did mention at the intro, I mentioned uh, Alpha Dynamics Health that sponsors Savannah. That's deeply appreciated. You don't want to forget to find Amazon link. Of course. If you do, if you guys shop on Amazon, please, please, please use our Amazon link. That's always appreciated. Uh, Whether you are deeply opposed to listening to my voice anymore and you want to get not afraid in book format instead or something like that. Well, you know what? I had it in book form and I just heard your voice as I was reading. There's nothing you can do. That's the way usually, that's the secret Bolelli magic that anytime you read something that vaguely has to do with me, you read it in my voice. Well, it's not just that. I mean, even even choose your own religion or or create your own religion Mm -hmm. was uh, open. I think something with the first 20 words that somehow drop you into Bolelli mode and then for the whole. (laughs) That's what happens. It's like right. Father Guido Sadurci is reading the book in my head. <laughs> That's how it is, man. Cool. Having said all that, I wish you guys a very good day. 
Uh, we shall touch base in two weeks with a new episode. <laughs>